Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is shaking, everybody? How are you? I am so excited. Coming to you from San Diego, from beautiful San Diego now. I've gotten all moved in, and I am incredibly stoked. Stoked is my surfer word to be sharing this episode today with you guys from Dr. Ben Lynch. You guys may know Dr. Lynch. He is very well known in the world of methylation and basically invented MTHFR in the way that Al Gore invented the internet, but he is seriously an expert on methylation, genetics, single nucleotide polymorphisms. You will enjoy this episode. Everybody's heard the term MTHFR. We go into it in detail here. We definitely get technical at times, but I do my best to kind of summarize and bring it all back home for us and make it able to be understood. So Dr. Ben Lynch is the best-selling author of a book called Dirty Genes. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's a really good book. He's a leader in the field of nutrigenomics, which is the intersection of nutrition and genetics. He's the president of Seeking Health, which really is an innovative company providing supplements, courses, tools designed to help people overcome genetic dysfunction, and optimize health. He earned his Bachelor of Science in Cell and Molecular Biology, little smarty pants, from University of Washington. He obtained a Doctor of Naturopathic Medicine from Bastyr University in Seattle, and he now serves on the Board of Trustees there. He lives in Seattle with his wife and three sons, and I got to hang out with all of them recently. They are good people. We went out on Ben's boat. We went wake surfing. It was an enjoyable day, and as you'll hear in this episode, Ben Lynch ate raw meat and got a buzz, and it made me so, so happy, you guys. It made me so happy. Um, But as you can tell, a lot of things make me happy. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. As I mentioned in this episode, I have been impressed with the quality, the consideration, and the intentionality that goes into all the supplements he makes. And so I recommend the Seeking Health brand to my clients without reservation You'll know, if you know anything about me, that I very rarely recommend supplements in general. And as Dr. Lynch and I talk about in this episode, I think supplements are something that should be supplemental. They do have utility, but I use them very rarely. When I do use them, I usually go for a seeking health thing, and I have no affiliation with Ben. He's not paying me to say that. He didn't pay for this interview. He's just a good guy, and I want to talk to him about methylation. And he has supplements that I think are very clean and well-considered. So if you are in the supplement market, you should improve the quality of your food first, (laughs) do your exercise, sleep, and then think about seeking health if you want something that's clean and that I trust personally. Speaking of things that are clean, check out my newsletter. It's like the Outcast song, right? Fresh and clean. It's fresh and clean. I just released one today. Although today is not the day the podcast is getting released. Today is a few days before the day is getting the day that getting the podcast is released. But I released a newsletter today. And if you didn't get it, you're missing out. I always talk about articles that I like. I talk about this podcast. I talk about cool things that are happening with me, my move to San Diego, 
surfing, sunsets, you know, cool things I like. This week I talked about a Berkey filter, which I think is a great water filter. I'm going to be talking about books I like and podcasts. Go to paulsaladinomd.com front slash newsletter or just paulsaladinomd.com. Click on the newsletter link, put in your email, and you will be in the Cool Kids Club. And I will see you on the newsletter side in a couple of days when I release another one. As always, this podcast is sponsored by the Incredible Ancestral Supplements. These guys are the bomb. I love what they do. You know I love their supplements. I like their supplements because they're good people and because they source them well. They're sourced from New Zealand. They're grass-fed. There are no additives. And it's an incredible line of supplements. They have liver, heart, kidneys, pancreas, brain, and more. As we talk about in this episode... The kidney of the animal has diamine oxidase in it and is very helpful for people with histamine issues. So if you have histamine issues, definitely check out the kidney supplement. The other one that I've been loving recently is the brain supplement because it's really hard to get a hold of beef brains or lamb brains or any of that stuff. There's a guy on Instagram who's going to send me some lamb brains and I'm going to tell you how they are. But until I can get the lamb brains, I think these beef brain supplements from Ancestral are a great option. They have neurotrophic factors that support the survival of existing neurons and they grow new neurons. So that sounds like a good thing to me. And I play a doctor on TV, so I don't know. Maybe I know what I'm talking about. Probably not, but you can decide for yourself. So anyway, I like these guys a lot. I do think their problem, their products are valuable, and I certainly believe in nose to tail. I believe that we should be eating more of these organs, and I think the ancestral supplement stuff are a great way to achieve this. If you don't have pancreas, liver, heart, kidney, spleen, uh, tendons, collagen at your nearest grocery store. If you do, then you should probably eat those as well. But um, when we're traveling, difficult to get those, and it's just hard to get all these things in, and I think that these are a great way to do that. So check them out at ancestralsupplements.com. You can use the code SALADINOMD for 10% off, and that will support this podcast as well. So thank you for your consideration there. The other thing that I continue to love is the Juve light. You guys have heard me talk about this. It is my near-infrared light. I have used it to raise my testosterone. I really appreciate these guys as well. They are also good people. I don't, have, I don't really endorse a lot of supplements. I don't do the affiliate stuff much, but when I do, it's something I really believe in and something that you better believe I use. Uh, if you go to Juve, J-O-O-V.com, front slash Paul, that will also support this podcast. That is my affiliate link for Juve. I probably will do a podcast all about that stuff in the future because I like it so much. The red light therapy is so interesting to me, but I think it's pretty clear that our bodies need near-infrared light. You can get ultraviolet light in a tanning bed. You can get ultraviolet light from the sun. You can get, ultra, you can get near-infrared light when you're outside, but I'm not able to be outside with naked and with all my body exposed in sunrise and sunset. But many of you will notice that if you are outside at sunset, you may sleep better. And that's probably something with the near-infrared light, which is going on then. So I've noticed this improves my sleep. I don't have an aura ring yet, but I've heard other people talk about the fact that their uh, deep sleep and REM are better when they do near-infrared treatments before they go to sleep. So check these guys out. It's cool stuff. All right, you guys, that is it. On to the podcast. Enjoy this one. It gets technical at times. I tried to bring it back. If it's too technical, let me know. We'll do another methylation when it's a super important topic. I appreciate you all. Thanks for listening. All right.
right. Welcome to the podcast, my friend, Dr. Ben Lynch. It is a pleasure to have you here today. How are you? I don't have any uh, raw steak on my my desk here, so I'm not sure how good I am, Paul. <laughs> People may not know that we recently met at the home of Mike Mutzel, who's an incredible guy. I recently moved out of Seattle. I'm 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 a little bit I'm a little sad about that. I'm missing it now. You know, I see photos of the Pacific Northwest, and I think that's oh, really beautiful there. But I'm living in the ocean or near the ocean now in San Diego. But you and I had dinner with Mike a week before I left, and um, I convinced you somehow to try lots of interesting <laughs> things. So tell tell us what happened at that dinner, man. Like tell us what happened at that dinner. <laughs> One in Rome, you do things that Romans do, right? <laughs> so when you're surrounded by people eating a bunch of weird things, you chime in and eat a bunch of weird things. And, and uh, you know, when you realize it's, it's actually not that weird, it's kind of what our ancestors did too when it was a rainy day and, you know, their cave was flooded for some reason or all the wood was wet or they didn't know how to build a fire. They just ate and, they you know, they survived because we're here. So... You know, it was a it was a good experience for me to eat the the raw fat, the the raw liver, and the raw what was it sirloin? It was tenderloin. Tenderloin, yeah, it was good, and and uh, you know it it was cool. And then you came over to my home, and you offered it to a bunch of kids, and the kids, you know, some of them were down for it, and others like heck no. So, but uh, I recommend giving it a shot with someone who's educated about it. But when, what was so cool was that when we were at dinner with Mike and I gave you the raw meat, how did you react? How did you feel? We recorded this on an Instagram oh, yeah. story, but everybody probably didn't see it. I got a buzz, man. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, it was like, you know, some people do meth or cocaine and I guess Paul does raw meat. And, and uh, you know, I, I took a bite of that stuff and I got a little lit up. It was, it was cool. It was, there was something in there that my body needed that I wasn't getting. And, you know, I supplement like crazy and, you know, as I need to, and, and I eat generally pretty well and I move my body and, but I ate that little bit of raw meat. I mean, I didn't have a full plate like you did. I'm, I'm not that level yet, um, but uh, I felt good. I felt really good. I thought that was so cool. I thought that was so cool. And it was so interesting that you were open-minded and then it was awesome. I went out to your house a couple of days later and we went wake surfing People may not know this, but you're, you're, you're becoming a good wake surfer. And, you know, we had a good time. I post a video of you wake surfing on, on the Instagram as well. I'll have to repost that when this, when this podcast comes out. I need a new video. I've gotten a lot better. Oh, really? Yeah, I got slack rope. I can, I can ride the wave for a little bit. I'm still working on staying on it, but I'm getting, I'm getting good. I'm getting that makes good. me happy, my friend. Yeah. It's the best. Surfing is the best. We'll get you out to San Diego soon. But, but yeah, it was super fun. I walked into your house and there were a bunch of teenagers there and they all wanted to hear about the Robbie. And so I wanted <laughs> to try. It was so cool. Yeah. But yeah. So I think that I'm just so excited to have you on the show today because I've been following your work for a while um, people may know about me that I've just finished residency at the University of Washington. And, you know, when I was in residency, I learned a lot about functional medicine topics and methylation was one of those topics. And if you Google methylation, you find Dr. Ben Lynch, like immediately. I mean, uh, just kind of like Al Gore invented the internet. I'm pretty sure you invented <laughs> methylation. So, and then you wrote a book called Dirty Genes, which is amazing. And we'll talk about a lot of stuff in Dirty Genes. 
and I'll link to it in the show notes. But I get questions about methylation and MTHFR all the time. So there's no one better that I could think of to have on the podcast to talk about this and break it down a little bit. It's a complex topic, but I'm so excited to hear you talk about it. So for people that don't know what we're talking about, who don't know about methylation and the gene MTHFR, where would just where should we start? I mean, where do people need to start to get a grasp on this and why is it relevant to people? Well, it's it's a tool in your tool shed, you know, and, and it's a it's a kitchen appliance in your kitchen. So, you know, the body has many, many different types of functions and tools in order to get those functions done. And genes are one such major tool. And so we have about eighteen to twenty thousand different genes in the human body. And that kind of equates to about 18 different, 18,000 different tools in your body to do different things, whether you want to digest the meat, whether you want to absorb the meat, whether you want to transport the nutrients from the meat, whether you want to get those nutrients bound to a receptor to pull those nutrients inside the cell. You know, the, all these require different genes because the body is a beautifully tuned, refined instrument. And the word instrument is it's kind of degrading to think of the human body as that because it's so amazingly powerful and beautiful. But genes have jobs to do. And if you have the wrong tool for the wrong job, or you were given a rusted tool that's half bent and you're trying to, you know, put in a screw and maybe the, the Phillips screw that, you know, the screws with the pluses, you know, it's a little bit stripped and you're trying to put that in with a flathead screwdriver it ain't going to work so well. And so if you're born with genes that, you know, kind of a, a blunted screwdriver and you're giving it a tool, you know, that's a bit, you know, stripped out itself by not eating well or the environment's bad, then you're not going to be performing as optimally as someone with a brand new DeWalt screwdriver with a new bit on it with brand new screws. So it, you, your body has the tools. We have different tools in our, all of our tool sheds and we all have different genes and the, the components that we utilize every day matter. And you, so you, you kind of touch on two things that you talk about in the book. There are a couple of ways that our genes can get dirty. We can get dirty genes from, uh, by being born, we can be born with kind of a, a crappy screwdriver, or mm -hmm. we can, the, the screwdriver can get kind of blunt and crappy as we're living our life. So what are, what are, what are some of the ways that, that people, I guess, you know, if you're born with a gene that doesn't function as well, we'll talk about MTHFR as a great example of that. If, if you're born with a gene that doesn't function as well, that's just what you've got and you can modify it as best possible. But what are some ways that our genes get dirty in our life? Environmental exposures, what kind of stuff makes, can make the screwdriver blunt, if, even if we're not born with a blunt screwdriver? Well, you can get that screwdriver and you can... Uh get a piece of stuck bubble gum on the end of it. So it could be a brand new screwdriver, but it's got a gunk of bubble gum on the end. So if you remove the bunk, gunk of bubble gum, your screwdriver is just fine. Right. And so, you know, if somebody does a genetic test and they get their MTHFR test back and they look, it's like, wow, I'm quote unquote normal. There's no genetic variation in my MTHFR gene. I'm, I'm good, but yet I have high homocysteine and I don't feel good and something, my MTHFR gene must be dirty because you take folate or you consume leafy greens and your homocysteine levels go down. So that is definitely associated with the MTHFR gene or you take riboflavin and it goes down, your homocysteine goes down. So 
it's, it's really important to understand the different types of dirt and how they impact your genetic function. And so that is what the book Dirty Genes does is because there's, there's too much guessing in medicine, as you know, Paul, right? Especially in psychiatry or, or, or uh, you know, well, actually all aspects of medicine nowadays. There's, there's poking and prodding and testing and guessing and, and take this, take that, let me know how you feel and we'll change it up. But if you understand how genes work, the tools, that the jobs that they're doing and the type of actions that they want to have or the type of support that they want, i.e. what vitamins and minerals make them go and you know, what substrate that they need, i.e. protein or you know, upstream types of different folate, then you know how to take action your own, in your own life. And let's say, you, know, you touched on a little bit, but let's say you're born with a dirty MTGFR. You're a dirty mofo, right? <laughs> so let's say that. I'm, I'm born with a dirty MTGFR gene. And when I first looked at it, I tell you, Paul, I was scared. I was terrified. But now I know I'm kind of a blunt screwdriver. So I look for really good screws that aren't stripped. And I also, you know, make sure that I'm perfectly parallel to that screw before I start turning. So it, once you know that you have a, a weaker tool in the tool shed, you adapt, right? Because you can't go and, and get a new tool all the time. So basically what we're talking about here is the idea, like you mentioned, that, that our bodies have 20,000 different genes, or essentially. I mean, that number is give and take, you know, a little bit, but we have thousands of tools and all those genes code for things like enzymes that do things in our bodies and those serve functions. And for some people, there are this, there's this thing, and this is a, an acronym that I think people may have heard that I'll explain, the single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And the SNPs affect the way the genes function and they kind of make us individuals, right? So what we're talking Absolutely. about now are single nucleotide polymorphisms in specific genes. One of the genes we've mentioned is MTHFR, and we'll go into more detail about what that gene is and what it does. But there are these polymorphisms in MTHFR and other genes that we're born with. And that's one way that, that the genes in our bodies can be more or less able to do their functions. And so what we're talking about is the idea that you can be born with the genes that don't do the functions very well because of certain polymorphisms, or they can get dirty because of environmental exposures like toxins or inadequate sleep or stress or inadequate nutrients. And uh, the ultimate result is that these tools don't work as well as they should. Is that kind of a fair summary of all that? Nailed it. Okay. Nailed it. Nailed it. So let's talk about MTHFR because that's, that's the... That's the prize gene that everybody talks about. So what is it? What does it stand for? I mean, you've already talked about the acronym. You know, everybody calls it the mother effort gene. I'm trying to keep the podcast clean. You know, <laughs> if you look at the acronym, it looks like, it looks like mother effort. So, uh, you know, what is that gene? What is it involved in? What is methylation? And, and how does this fit into the broader context of human health? It fits in the broader context of human health because it's, it's the driving force of what turns your genes on and off. You know, a lot of us think that our genes are fixed, and some of them are. Our eye color, our hair color, our skin color, these are fixed. I mean, we can tan, right? But that's, that's different. So, but you are born with certain things and you can't change that. What I'm talking about when I'm talking about genetic and genetic function is I'm talking about the genes that we can influence and how they're 
you know, communicating and how they're turning on and off. So basically, you know, it's, it's a huge thing, but if, if you want to put it in the context of real life, you know, you look at your, look at your hand, for example, in your hand, there's DNA everywhere, right? And most of your genes in your hand are turned off. And in order to turn genes off and on, they have to be methylated. And methylated is an action in the human body that takes a, a small component, a carbon and a few hydrogens, and it just sticks it on the gene and it tells it, you know, to don't work. You're done for the day or you're done forever. And a, the flip side of that is if someone is not consuming any uh, methyl groups in their diet, because you consume foods that have a lot of methyl donors in them. So when you eat meat, you're getting a lot of choline and choline is a methyl donor. You're, you're also consuming vitamin B12 and you hear methylcobalamin, right? Methylcobalamin is found in meat, especially liver. So you, when you're consuming meat or liver, you're getting a lot of methylcobalamin and you're helping your methylation. If your diet is void of methyl groups in about two weeks, your methylation system will be messed up and a lot of your genes will actually be turning on and that shouldn't be on. And then your risk for cancer goes up. So that is, you know, since a lot of genes are, are silenced, a big factor of methylation is, is making sure that these genes stay off and that also certain other genes stay on. That's a huge factor. But then there's another aspect of methylation, which changes the function of things. So for example, making creatine, right? Let's say you eat a lot of meat or, or you don't eat a lot of meat, but big aspect of methylation is making creatine. And vegetarians and vegans, typically, if they're not eating well, you know, it's, I was a vegetarian for about a year and I felt like crap. Uh, I didn't do it right. And I know vegetarians or vegans, some of them are jacked and super fit, but I think their genetics are designed for it and they eat a really good diet. But when I did it, I, I was losing muscle mass and creatine helps hydrate your muscles. Uh, as well. And so methylation uses, you know, most of uh, its own compounds to make creatine. About 80% of your methylation reactions in your body are used to make creatine and also make your cell membranes. And we'll get into that in more detail. But basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a crucial process that you have to have functioning. And a lot of it's controlled by diet. So it's sort of the addition of these methyl groups, which are single carbon units to to molecules, to genes, to turn them on and off, to other molecules like the precursor for creatine to make creatine, to make neurotransmitters. So we're moving, I always think about it kind of like a currency in the body. It's almost like Bitcoin or something in the human body. It's this, it's a methyl group, you know, it's a single carbon currency that gets moved around the body. And I think I've heard you say that there are, that SAMe, which is a common methyl donor, so S-adenosylmethionine, and we can talk about that, participates in over 300 methylation reactions in the body. Yep. So yep. as I understand it, there are hundreds and hundreds of reactions in the body where methyl groups, this one carbon unit, you know, this, this currency is added to things or taken away from things. And that is really one of the major processes that runs our body. It is. It's, it's, it's massively important. And, and we can spend days just talking about methylation in and of itself, weeks, and what's left over as a methylation after a methylation reaction occurs is actually homocysteine. So we, we hear how bad homocysteine is in cardiovascular disease and cancer risk and you know, psychological disorders, and it is. 
But homocysteine is unmethylated methionine. That's all it is. So when you eat protein, you're consuming methionine and other amino acids. And methionine is a big, big component of protein consumption, consumed diets. And methionine is just methylated. Methionine is also called methyl homocysteine, if you want to call it that. So, you know, it, you, homocysteine is good and you need homocysteine. You just methylate it and you methylate it with the uh, methylcobalamin and methylfolate, which is what the MTHFR gene makes. So we talked about MTHFR and MTHFR is an acronym for this big mouthful of words that makes your body's primary form of folate. So if you're not consuming a bunch of leafy green uh, veggies or liver uh, or other types of foods that contain folate in them, you hear the word folate, it actually comes from foliage. So that's pretty cool when you think about folate is foliage. And so if you, if you have a slower, more sluggish MTHFR gene, you're not going to be making that much methylfolate. And you need that methylfolate to take that homocysteine and slap a methyl group on it. And now you're helping your, meth your methylation system again. But the good news is if you're eating a bunch of leafy greens and you're eating that liver, it doesn't matter if you have a sluggish MTHFR or not because your MTHFR gene doesn't have to work so hard because you're giving it the end product. You're giving it the, you know, the final thing that it makes. So it doesn't have to work. Doesn't have to work as hard. This is an interesting concept. You and I were kind of dialoguing about this a little bit offline a couple of weeks ago via text. You know, are you, so I guess I'll just break this down for people. Um, the, the folate cycle, actually what we're talking about now is the methionine cycle. This is kind of a complex biochemical reaction. It's, this is one of the challenging things about podcasts. And um, if people are interested in this, they can look up the methionine cycle. I know it's Seeking Health org, you have these pathway planners that really show people how all these reactions look. And man, these are some of the best visual representations of the folate cycle. And the, these are definitely the best representations of the folate cycle and the methionine cycle that I've ever seen. So if people really want to understand the biochemistry, I would recommend going to seekinghealth.org and looking at Dr. Lynch's pathway planners. But what we're talking about now is this idea that you eat folate in your diet, and we can talk about the different types of folate, but we eat folate in our diet and it goes through a series of enzymes and gets processed via, uh, into different folate forms. But that last step, that last step in the folate conversion pathway is that enzyme, right? It's MTHFR. And that's the tool that we've been talking about that can be affected by SNPs, these single nucleotide polymorphisms. And that takes one form of folate and makes L-methylfolate, which is really the active form of folate. And when people have a sluggish MTHFR gene, they don't make that conversion very well. But what's so interesting to me is that in some foods, like you're suggesting, you can get preformed L-methylfolate. Is that right? 100%. And so yeah. I, I think we were talking about this a little bit. And do you know, what, what type of foods are you aware of that have preformed L-methylfolate? Liver. 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 Yeah, liver, huge, huge amounts of folate in liver. And then you've got uh, spinach, you, anything green is going to have folate in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but then as you talked about with veggies, when we were having that dinner, you know, plants are trying to protect themselves. And so they make compounds, i.e. constituents or chemicals inside their leaves and their root systems to protect them against pests and, and animals. And, uh, you know, then they, they design their seeds to either blow in the wind or stick to animals fur or what have you to be transported for somewhere else. 
So plants have really evolved to protect themselves. And so if, when we eat those certain foods, you know, they might support us with nutrients, but at the same time, there are anti-nutrients in those foods too. So for beans, for example, you know, if you're eating beans, there are folate in beans, but that folate in beans is not very well utilized by the body because of phytates and other things. So it's, it's uh, in, in, in leafy green veggies, you have oxalates and you got tannins and, you know, so it's, it's, it's tough to, you know, sometimes get these nutrients from these foods. And some people have real difficulty actually eating these foods. So consuming liver would be a, a good way to really, really hit home and absorb a lot of these nutrients without these compounds blocking the absorption. Yeah. So it's so interesting to me that the, that the forms of folate are different and that, like you're saying, some sources of folate are going to be better than others. And I think liver is a great source of a lot of magical compounds, riboflavin being one of them and preformed folate being one of them. And so this is such an interesting idea that I guess animals are making methylfolate too. They're making L-methylfolate. So why wouldn't there be methylfolate in liver? Now, there's been a lot of interesting research recently about riboflavin and MTHFR. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What's the deal with riboflavin and MTHFR? Riboflavin being another one of the B vitamins, different than yeah. folate. Well, it's, it's just like we talked about. You can have a, a, a born dirty gene or you can get a, a got dirty gene. Mm-hmm. And so MTHFR can be born dirty, i.e. meaning it, it, you inherited a SNP which didn't make it so uh, quickly to function or, or is as a, you know, readily available to work, like mine. Mine's reduced capacity about 70-80%, which is very, very significant, especially when you live the life like I used to do in my college days and pre-college days where I didn't eat very well and I suffered from it. Um, now I eat a fair amount of protein and, and uh, get my salads in, usually, um, and I feel much better. But uh, uh, I lost my train of thought here. Um, your question was, Oh, how does riboflavin play into uh, MTHFR? Yeah. Yeah. So riboflavin is the nutrient needed by your MTHFR enzyme. So genes make enzymes, most of them, not all of them, but genes make enzymes. And the enzyme will take a mineral or a vitamin, usually, not always, in order for that enzyme to function. And it requires certain pHs, certain temperatures, certain environments. Um, and freedom of other things to allow that vitamin and mineral to bind to that enzyme so that enzyme can now do work. So think of it as a, the MTGFR enzyme is a wheelbarrow uh, sitting in your driveway, right? So riboflavin is going to be, you know, the person who's actually wheeling the wheelbarrow. So it actually you have the MTGFR enzyme, it's there, but it's not going to do anything unless there is something to drive it. So riboflavin is the driver of the MTGFR enzyme. And if you are low in riboflavin, which actually, Paul, a lot of people are, riboflavin is a very, very important nutrient. And not only is it an important nutrient, uh, that's becoming more deficient in the population. And I think partially it's getting deficient in the population is one, because people don't eat nose tail like me. Um, and, and two, uh, people don't eat grains like me. And brown foods contain a lot of B vitamins. And so if you're not eating grains and you're not eating nose to tail, then you are going to be most likely riboflavin deficient. So unless you're supplementing. So that's kind of sad to say, 
Um, but you can get riboflavin from nuts and seeds also and, and other types of foods, fish and, and so on. But riboflavin is really, really important. Now, something I don't talk about enough is I, have a, I do have a dedicated video on this somewhere on the world of YouTube. Um, but the riboflavin, when you take a, a supplement of riboflavin, it could be riboflavin 5-phosphate or it could be riboflavin hydrochloride, which is fine. But in order for that riboflavin to actually be utilized by your MTHFR enzyme, you have to have sufficient thyroid function. And not enough people talk about this. So, because if you look at the pathway planners, as Paul was talking about, that, that uh, I drew up from all sorts of research papers and, and consolidating my findings on the one diagram, you know, it's not just listed as riboflavin, it's listed as FAD. We're changing it back to just B2 and riboflavin just for clarity's sake, but your thyroid function has to be functional because your thyroid hormones convert the riboflavin that you are consuming into active riboflavin. Which is FAD. Which is FAD. Right. And I think this is such an important point to emphasize for people. And I love that you brought up nose to tail. Um, I probably, I mean, yeah, we'll talk about it, but you know, guys, just so you know, Dr. Ben Lynch is not a carnivore, but he's super interested in this. And so like, you know, he's, he's open-minded and, um, he thinks about things broadly and, um, it's so cool when doctors in the space as well, who are not even carnivores can speak to principles that might illustrate ways that a carnivorous nose and tail diet might be beneficial. And that's not why I bring people on the show, but it's interesting because it kind of brings it all full circle. But the, the food sources of riboflavin are interesting to look at. I love, I love building a diet based on first principles and sort of reverse engineering a diet and looking at the nutrients that a human needs. I don't think that as humans, we know everything about nutrition, but we know a heck of a lot about what vitamins and minerals humans need to function optimally. And it's so interesting to me to think about where we would get those vitamins and minerals from in food and what the best sources of those vitamins and minerals are in food. And as you kind of touched on earlier, I've done a good amount of research for my book now, and a lot of the B vitamins are not as bioavailable in plants because of, uh, because of the glycoproteins. And so if we're trying to get B vitamins from plants, they're only about 30% as bioavailable as B vitamins in animals, which I think is such an interesting concept because of these glycoproteins. But even within plants, there's not a lot of great sources of riboflavin. Really, if people want to get enough riboflavin in a day, they have to be eating egg yolks or liver. Those are really, or supplementing. Those are really the only sources of bioavailable riboflavin in adequate amounts. And the RDA for riboflavin is like 1.1, 1.2 milligrams. But there's some pretty compelling evidence that higher doses of riboflavin are even beneficial for people and might be needed for people with MTHFR polymorphisms. Um, I'll also mention that my MTHFR is dirty as well. I was born, I have, so I'm poly, I am a homozygous for the 677C to T mutation. Is that what you are? Are you a compound heterozygous? I'm compound. Yeah, I got one of each. Yeah. yeah, and I'll, I'll clarify for people what that means, or I'll let you explain. So what, what do we mean when we say homozygous, heterozygous, compound heterozygous, yeah. with MTHFR? So, you know, you have the egg and you have the sperm. And within the egg, you have a uh, set of DNA, and within the sperm, you have a set of DNA. And upon conception, you know, you, you inherit one of those uh, DNA from your mom, and you're inheriting one from your dad. So if you have, you inherited one uh, aspect, that's heterozygous. So heterozygous means you have a, a variation 
from what is normal than typically found in the population. So it's, it's not mutated basically. And homozygous means you've inherited a copy from your mom and your dad that is different than the standard population. It's different. It's not bad. It's just different. Sometimes it's bad, but sometimes it's, it's just different. And so when, when Paul says he's homozygous for the MTHFR 677, he inherited one copy of the MTHFR gene, which we all do. And at position, the genes are made of a bunch of DNA bases. And I think the MTHFR gene has about 20,000 DNA bases. And at position 677, there was a change in one of those DNA bases from a cytosine to a thymine. And, you, and then he inherited the same thing from his dad. So he's, he now he has, instead of two cytosines for the MTHFR gene, he has two thymines. And what does that do? Well, it changes the shape of the MTHFR enzyme when it's made. And when you change the shape of the enzyme, you change its function. And so by changing the shape of the MTHFR gene or the, the MTHFR enzyme, the riboflavin can't bind very well. It can't sit very well in, in, on the MTHFR enzyme. And so what you do is you take more riboflavin. And if you take more riboflavin, Dr. Bruce Ames did research on this, that if you, if you take a gene like MTHFR and there's variations in there that don't allow it to, to bind riboflavin very well, by giving it a lot more riboflavin, there's a higher likelihood that that riboflavin actually is going to bind to that enzyme and it's going to be able to perform and do work. So when you start thinking of it this way, you know, why is it that people who have chronic persistent migraines realize that they can take 400 milligrams of riboflavin and they got their life back, right? If the RDA is 1.2 milligrams and yet there are supplements that contain riboflavin of 400 milligrams, you're like, whoa, that's 400 times higher than the, the standard RDA. Well, yeah, but these people no longer have migraines. And so there's another enzyme called MAO-A which also requires a lot of riboflavin. And also your glutathione uh, reductase enzyme uses a lot of riboflavin. So there's, a, there's a, a number of genes that need riboflavin in fairly high amounts if they're, if they're not working very well. It's such an interesting concept. And just so people know, in terms of the, the amounts of riboflavin that we're talking about, if you eat a few ounces of liver and four or five egg yolks a day, you could probably get two to three milligrams of riboflavin. As far as I can tell, it would be impossible to get 400 milligrams of riboflavin in a day from food. So if people have persistent migraines, they're not going to get enough. They're not going to get that dose of riboflavin from food. And in that case, a supplement is probably beneficial. I think most people probably do just fine. I've seen my uh, MTHFR function, I believe, normalize with just liver and egg yolks. I used to supplement L-methylfolate, and I stopped uh, when I was doing carnivore just to kind of follow uh, and I'll talk, to, I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But interestingly for you, you know, Ben, I recently rechecked my homocysteine on no methylfolate and it was seven, just eating nice. liver and egg yolks. So I thought that was yep. really interesting. Exactly. What I'm talking about there is the idea that we can use homocysteine levels as, a, as kind of a proxy for MTHFR function. Do you think that's reasonable? I think it's reasonable most of the time. Mm -hmm. Most of the time. If, especially if you don't have, uh, if you're feeling pretty good and, you're, and your homocysteine is around seven, I think that's good. The problem is, this gets complicated, especially without a diagram, is homocysteine, the diagram wants to go back towards, well, let's, let's talk about it this way. 
when you methylate something, the leftover remnant is homocysteine, right? We talked about that earlier. So, you know, if, you, if you're making creatine and your body has to do that, it's using up a lot of methylation and it's leaving a lot of homocysteine out there for it to be converted. What people don't talk about, they talk about SAMI, they talk about homocysteine, but there's a component in the middle of those two, which is called SAW. So you have SAM, you have SAW, then you have homocysteine. So SAW is actually a precursor to homocysteine. It's, it's one step after SAM, after methylation occurs, you have SAW, and then before it becomes homocysteine. So I say usually homocysteine is fine, but the best marker for methylation is actually SAW. And even more, uh, you know, more better, <laughs> even better than that, it sounded like my kids. No better. Yeah, they, they, they learn a lot in public school, I tell you. Um, so, you know, your, your Sam Saw is a, is a more better. <laughs> now I'm just playing with it, keeping you on your toes here. It's, it's a better way to check your methylation. Homocysteine, easy to find, affordable, simple. Go for it. But if you're still struggling, try to find a lab like Doctor's Data who looks at your methylation ratio, if you're SAM, your SAW, and they measure that, they let you know. The downfall of these tests is it might say that your homocysteine is fine, your SAW is high, but and your SAM is you know, high or low, and your ratio is bad, but it doesn't tell you why. So now you got to sleuth and figure that out with a doc. And that's when you start looking at genes and cofactors mm -hmm. and nutrients, and that's yeah. where the functional medicine approach comes in. So I'll just summarize for people because we're basically – we're painting this methionine cycle in our, in our imaginations, but we have, you know, let's just imagine in the bottom left-hand corner, we have MTHFR enzyme, which is taking folate. It's turning it into L-methylfolate. L-methylfolate combines with homocysteine, and it needs a riboflavin or an FAD to make uh, that homocysteine into, methi into methionine. Now, between homocysteine and methionine, there is some stuff involving a couple of other enzymes that we won't burden people with, and it involves B12 as well as a few other cofactors. But basically, homocysteine goes to methionine, and then that methionine gets, uh, turns into SAMI, and that's S-adenosylmethionine, and that's the SAMI that we've been talking about. And that's this universal methyl donor in the whole body. And then that donates methyl groups throughout the body, and when S-adenosylmethionine donates methyl groups to... Uh, DNA, to turn off the DNA like we talked about, to make creatine, to make choline. We're going to talk more about choline. When it does all those reactions in the human body, after it gets rid of that methyl group, it's now S-adenosyl homocysteine, which is SAW. So as Dr. Lynch is saying, that SAMI to SAW ratio, so S-adenosyl methionine to S-adenosyl homocysteine ratio is really the most accurate measure of methylation, but you have to work with a functional medicine doc to get a sense of that, homocysteine is much easier, but that's really the biochemistry. And then acidenosyl homocysteine goes back to homocysteine and we're back around the circle. Did I say all that right? You did. You did. Yeah. And I, I also tell people just take your thumb and your index finger, right? So your left thumb is methylfolate, your right thumb is homocysteine, and your left index finger is B12, mm -hmm. right? So actually you can pinch your, actually pinch your left finger and your thumb together. So you have, so your your left hand, your thumb and index finger are touching each other, uh -huh. and your uh, right hand is shaped as an L. Your thumb and your index finger are apart, and so you take your methylfolate and your methylcobalamin and you connect it to your thumb, 
and then that will convert the homocysteine into uh, methionine for you. So, methionine. yeah, so that's, that's uh, one way about it. But, you know, you can just look it up too on the internet and uh, see it. Look at the pathway planners at Seeking Health. That'll help people understand the biochemistry. But I yeah. think the takeaway, I, I, I think that we've had a good discussion of MTHFR here. And I think the takeaway is just the idea that this is a gene. It's involved in methylation, which is the addition of methyl groups. In this case, it's involved in the formation of L-methylfolate. If your MTHFR is dirty, meaning if you have polymorphisms at the 677 or 1298 position, you want to make sure you're getting enough riboflavin. You want to make sure you're getting enough methylfolate in the foods you eat. And then you want to make sure you check your homocysteine. And if there are more issues, then you probably want to work with a functional medicine doc to sort that all out. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah. And let's, let's use your uh, diet as, a, as an example of how this all works. Because, you know, you're reading all these papers these days, and they talk about how methionine is a marker of longevity. And if you are consuming a lot of methionine-containing foods, i.e. a lot of protein or meat, then you have higher risks of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. I call, I want to swear, it's <laughs> nonsense. Um, and, you know, the, I've met a number of vegans and vegetarians who are actually worse off in terms of cardiovascular disease than someone sitting next to them. So it all has to do with the individual, not the diet itself. So if the person, the vegan or vegetarian is doing their, their diet lifestyle and their environment right, they're fine. They're healthy. Go for it. If you have the carnivore who's just eating a, you know, a huge amount of meat and nothing else and not eating organ meats, well, their homocysteine could be high. Not definite, but it could be. So adding the liver like you're doing, Paul, is probably saving your butt because your homocysteine is a seven, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, this would be, this is proof to me that a carnivore diet, when done properly, you know, is still supporting your methylation. You're getting lots of choline, which is a methyl donor. You're getting lots of methionine, which is a methylated uh, component and precursor to SAMI, you're getting lots of uh, methylcobalamin, so, and you're getting the folates from your liver and a bunch of your B vitamins from your liver. So that's proof right there, because you are MTHFR 677 homozygous, which is setting you up for an 80% decrease in function of your MTHFR gene. So that means an 80% less ability to transform one aspect of folate into the body's number one form of folate. But who cares? if you're eating folate that the animal made. And you're getting enough riboflavin from the riboflavin-rich tissues and all that, that right. kind of stuff. Yeah. No, I thought right. it, when I started doing a carnivore diet, I thought, oh, I want to see what my methylation does. Because, and we can talk about this a little bit. I remember when I was first learning your stuff, I think you said that you had first gotten interested in the MTHFR enzyme because of all the literature you found linking MTHFR polymorphisms and psychiatric disease bipolar and things yep. like that. So right. maybe we can just talk for a moment. What kind of symptoms are associated with MTHFR polymorphisms or uh, what problems do people with MTHFR polymorphisms run into if their methylation and methionine cycles are not running as well as they should? Well, you, you touched on it earlier. Methylation supports over 300 different enzymatic reactions in the body. So you can have 300 things go wrong right there. It's a couple. Right, it's a couple. And then you have methylation turns all your genes on and all your genes off. 
So you're pretty much in trouble if your MDQR gene doesn't work. So it's, it's a myriad of, of signs and symptoms. And, and, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, have these petty little signs and symptoms, right? You, you get a little runny nose, right? And you go to the doc and actually you don't go to the doc because it's just a little irritating runny nose and you just wipe it on your hand and then go on your pants and you're, you're good to go. You know, and other people, it's like you lay it down at night and you stare at the ceiling and it takes you 45 minutes before you fall asleep. And then you finally invest in an aura ring and then you realize it's like, God, my deep sleep sucks. I'm only getting six minutes and uh, my heart rate is, you know, about 65. And you go to the doctor and doc, I'm not getting sleep. It's taking me too long to fall asleep. So they give you Ambien or something, you know, to knock you out. And meanwhile, your, your genes are thinking, what the hell is Ambien? I'm deficient in folate here and I'm deficient in other vitamins, and you're giving me some pharmaceutical with a bunch of crap in it and these other ingredients, and you've got shellac and food coloring and who else, and your body just needs some vitamins and minerals and some love. So, you know, it's, it really comes down to just basics and fundamentals, which we all know. And what you're referring to there with the sleep is the idea that methylation is involved in the formation of melatonin, right? It's, there- and, and, yes, you know, there's two steps to convert your serotonin to melatonin, and one of those is a methylation, a reaction. Then you have histamine. A lot of people with allergies or drinking wine, and listen, folks, this is a big one for a lot of you. If you're drinking wine and cheese, eating cheese, and you're, you're, you get you know slightly runny nose and you can't fall asleep, and you actually get a little bit irrit- irritable and red, and red in the face, that's high histamine levels. And so if you take certain nutrients or eat certain foods that can process that histamine for you, then you can fall asleep no problem. You're not going to be able to enjoy your wine and your cheese and you're not going to get irritated and you're not going to get the runny nose or the nosebleeds or the red face. You're like, whoa, whoa, talk more about that. Well, it's in the book. It's a dirty DAO gene. It's right there. But I'm just telling you that histamine needs methylation to get eliminated out of the body. And then you have your dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine also need methylation to get those out of the body. So, you know, methylation does a lot of important things for sleep, tons of important things for sleep. And so there you're talking about different things that are chapters in the book. There's a chapter in the book on the enzyme DAO, which you talk about, which is diamine oxidase. And that's something, if people have histamine sensitivity, they're familiar with DAO, they've heard of the DAO, and DAO can get dirty. So diamine oxidase can be dirty. And that is involved in the processing of these histamine molecules. And methylation is intimately connected with that. And then with regard to the catecholamines, you're referring to another part of your book. You go through all these in the book. It's so great. You're talking about COMT. So there you're talking about an enzyme called catecholaminomethyltransferase. And it's in the name, catecholamine-O-methyltransferase. There's a methylation reaction for the catecholamine neurotransmitters. So I hope we're just able to illustrate for people that methylation runs the body. It's an intimate system. It's an integral system in the body. And there's methylation reactions involving neurotransmitters, involving melatonin, involving histamine, involving all kinds of things. And if it doesn't work, you can get all kinds of symptoms that are going to be a problem. So this is why it's so crucial. It's not complicated. If you give your body the nutrients it needs, it usually works pretty well, but it can get really far out of whack if we're malnourished. Let's just talk for a moment about glycine because this is one of the things I talk a lot about on a carnivore diet and the idea of methionine glycine balance. And from looking at your stuff and reading other things, it's my impression that when your body gets excess methyl groups, if you're eating a lot of methionine in your meat, for instance, 
One of the ways it buffers those methyl groups is with a glycine molecule, and that can use up your glycine. Um, what, how does glycine play into all this, and is the methionine-glycine ratio important in your opinion? Wow, this is, you know, I've read papers on methionine, glycine, and, and the whole, you know, balance of, of SAMe. It is so confusing. And I will read them, and then I'm like, oh, I got it. And then I'll forget it. And then I'll read it again, and I'll forget it. And I honestly, Paul, I, I don't know. You know, and, you know, Chris Master John has, has talked a lot about glycine, and I've read his stuff. And I still am confused from eating his stuff. It still doesn't make sense. Now, you know, am I thinking too much into it? Yeah, probably. Right. Is it simpler than, you know, is it actually easier than I think? Actually, I don't think so. I think it's actually extremely complicated. I think one of the reasons why I'm not grasping it is because one, I haven't taught it, but I don't teach things until I actually get it enough and I can repeat it and I, I can look at different diagrams and I can make sense and I feel confident. I'm not going to teach something that I'm not confident about. Um, so I, one, I haven't taught it, but I haven't taught it because I'm not well-versed enough in it. And I think it's extremely complicated. So there is a gene in the human body called GNMT. It's glycine and methyltransferase. And you're thinking, wow, okay, so you need methylation for this gene. Well, actually, no. This gene is actually... Uh, you know, slow down by the by methylfolate. So when you take methylfolate, this GNMT gene is is slow. He's like, well, it's a methyltransferase. Yeah, but it's a confusing damn methyltransferase. <laughs> you know, um, so you know, and and this gene's job is to get rid of excess methyl groups in the body. Part of it, and, and, and if you have a lot of, lot of SAME, you don't want too much because you don't want to be flipping all these switches. So your body will, will dump the SAME and it will dump it through this gene called CVS and to make your glutathione. So then now, you know, dumping your, your methyl donors to make your body's number one antioxidant, glutathione is a fa fabulous thing, but it's really complicated. And, uh, you know, then you have other genes which make lysine too. You got the, the SHMT gene and there are variants in that and that requires vitamin B6 and it uses serine to do it and it also, you know, folates. So I can't, unfortunately, give you that much information. Um, I'd be, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but, uh, you know, maybe you can coach me through some of these things because it's, it's, it's just so confusing. And, and uh, I remember, you know, sarcosine feeds into the folate pathway and GNMT makes sarcosine. So it's just it's like, oh, <laughs> it's, it's a mess. Well, that's exactly what I've seen, that that glycine and methyltransferase uses these methyl groups to add a methyl group to glycine, which makes sarcosine. And again, we're getting super down the rabbit hole of biochemistry and that you can look at sarcosine levels to see if you're dumping methyl groups into that, into that pathway, you know, to get rid of the extra methyl groups. I think the takeaway from that for me, at least from my perspective, was that if we are eating a lot of methionine and muscle meat and not giving our body adequate glycine, or I should rephrase it, if we're eating a lot of methionine, it can use up glycine because humans can make glycine. You know, it's constitutively uh, required or it's, it's, I think they say it's conditionally essential. But mm -hmm. there's plenty of literature to suggest that at least in terms of broadly considered humans, most humans don't make enough glycine in their diet every day. They run about 10 grams short just in terms of all these things because we know that we use this amino acid for collagen and glutathione among other things super important amino acid. And so my thinking has always been, 
oh, we're going to, if we eat a lot of methionine and we don't give our body enough glycine, we can potentially use that glycine. We can use it up to buffer those methyl groups by that GNMT reaction to sarcosine, et cetera. So it's just an interesting thing. I don't think anybody fully knows what's going on there, but. Yeah. And so basically what I'm possibly hearing here is if you are taking, you say, methylfolate or methylcobalamin, and some of these folks have chronic persistent conditions, uh, you know, maybe they have collagen disorders or what have you, and they're not eating nose to tail or, or, you know, healthy or absorbing these foods. You know, maybe you are eating nose to tail, but your stomach acid is crap because you're stressed out or taking antacids, and, uh, you know, you've got antibodies against these things, and so you're not making the stomach acid, you're not absorbing the nutrients, so your glycine isn't building up. So basically, if you're taking methyl donors and you have insufficient glycine, you could be reacting to the methyl donors simply because you don't have that buffer impact of the glycine. That's, that's my impression. And it's also, uh, I'd be curious to get your take on this. You know, one of the things that I discourage people from doing in clinical practice is, is taking SAMe because yeah. I, I, would, I don't want to put methyl groups in the SAMe molecule. If I'm going to do something, I'll, I'll have somebody eat foods that have high folate and make sure they have enough riboflavin or I'll supplement riboflavin. But I don't want people taking CME. And in my experience, a lot of people take CME and they get anxious. And they, it's like they're overloading the methyl groups. It kinda, there are ways in our biochemistry now that we can sort of circumvent all of these stopgap measures. And you know, we can put these byproducts of our biochemistry in places where we shouldn't be pushing on them very hard. So I don't like to use CME in my practice because it pushes so many methyl groups there. And I learned this from you that if you overload somebody with SAMe, you're just going to push up their homocysteine. Yes. Or you can. And that's a really yes. bad thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's actually really stunning to me when I, when I read research papers about various things and the prescribed thing is 800 to 1,600 milligrams of SAMe to a pregnant woman for cholestasis. So, you know, gallbladder issues during pregnancy are actually fairly common. And part of that reason is because they have insufficient choline during pregnancy. So that's a huge problem. And I talk about that in the PEMT chapter uh, about this. And it's, you need to have sufficient choline to make your bile and your acetylcholine for your brain and your cell membranes. So every single cell is covered with a little membrane. And if you pull the nucleus out of the cell, it will live for about, I don't know, X amount of time, a few days or something. But if you pull the membrane off of it, it's dead in an instant. So cell membranes are really, really important. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of, I lost my train of thought again. So you can do it so damn many rabbit holes. It's so I easy know. to focus. We, we were talking about, um, we were talking about not giving too much SAMe and you were, ah, there were yes. these studies where they have tons of SAMe. Right. So, you know, these researchers said, oh, okay, well, we know that cholestasis of pregnancy is associated with gallbladder issues. And so if we give SAMe, a bunch of SAMe, then they can make phosphatidylcholine and a woman need 10 parts of phosphatidylcholine to one part cholesterol to have their gallbladder, uh, their, their bile slide through the sphincter of Odie right into the small intestine. And so I'm thinking, well, why in the heck would you give SAMe when you have no idea where it's going to go? Just give them phosphatidylcholine. Right. Done. And, you know, let's say a woman is pregnant and the, the study said, oh, it's helpful in some studies and not helpful in others. Well, what if a woman is has MTHFR or she's already has high homocysteine levels. Well, the SAMe is going to make it worse. She's not going to actually make more phosphatidylcholine. She's going to make less. So you got to be taking phosphatidylcholine during pregnancy or lecithin. 
And these things are phenomenal for gallbladder issues. And, and those of you who are following the keto diet or intermittent fasting, you know, you've got to be really up, up in your phosphatidylcholine levels, you know, if, if you're not eating like Paul does, because you're getting a lot of phosphatidylcholine precursors um, from eating these the way that you do. The choline, um, right? Just yeah. the choline and the mean. Yeah, let's talk, yeah. Let's yeah. talk about choline because this is one of the other genes. You know, I don't want to keep you too long. I want to respect your time, but I think let's talk about PEMT briefly because I think it's if I think MTHFR is amazing and we talked about that a lot. But let's talk away about let's talk about how methylation connects to choline through PEMT. So this is fascinating and we'll kind of bring the whole discussion together. So what is PEMT? PEMT is a is an enzyme in the body, well, gene that makes an enzyme. And this enzyme's job is to make phosphatidylcholine. You're like, okay, what the hell's that? Well, phosphatidylcholine is the major component in every single cell membrane in your body, number one. And your brain is a huge amount of phosphatidylcholine, your, your nerves as well, and your bile. So if you're eating a lot of animal fat and you're not eating enough animal protein or your methylation system isn't working, then you're not going to be getting sufficient choline and, and also getting not therefore not getting enough phosphatidylcholine. So your, your bile is going to get thick and sludgy. And if it gets thick and sludgy, the number one form of gallstones are cholesterol based stones. So remember you have to have 10 parts of phosphatidylcholine to one part cholesterol in your bile in order for it to slide through and, and, and dump out to not get stones. And a lot of people have that reversed. So PMT is, uses a lot of SAMe. In fact, every, comp, every molecule of uh, phosphatidylcholine that is made uses three SAMEs. So that means that every time your body wants to make phosphatidylcholine, it's also producing a fair amount of homocysteine at the same time. It's a very demanding product. So in order to make that, now you need to recycle that homocysteine with adequate folate and vitamin B12 or choline, or B6. So now just making the phosphatidylcholine requires other nutrients in the human body for it to, to function. So you're thinking, wow, that's actually, that's starting to make a lot of sense. How do I support that? Well, eating a, a meat-based diet with some healthy veggies as well, um, or eating organ meats that contain all these vitamins and minerals in them that you know these micro these micronutrients that are found in high amounts of, of in organ meats. So the phosphatidylcholine is, is really really important. You can get phosphatidylcholine as a supplement. Please only get it in the sunflower based form if you're not allergic to sunflower because a soy based phosphatidylcholine uses a lot of hexane. And if I invite you to try if you want, it, you know it's GMO issues as well, and you got Roundup and all that sprayed on soy too. Um, but the hexane is a, is a major solvent and you actually can taste the, the solvent if you bite into PC based capsules that are using uh, soy PC. It's, it's actually pretty nasty. Oh, that's gross. So yeah, gross. that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And this is another thing that, that, that I mentioned in the intro, but we haven't talked about is that you have a supplement company seeking health. And when I am recommending supplements to my clients, which is rare, admittedly, because as we've talked about, supplements are supposed to be supplementary, and I yes. want them to do food first. But I will tell people, and I am not affiliated with Seeking Health, like I, you know, I recommend your supplements first, because I think that Dr. Lynch is one of the most, if not the most considerate, uh, you know, intentional person when he's designing supplements. 
So the supplements at Seeking Health are probably some of the highest quality I've ever seen, and they have the most intention that goes into them of anything I'd seen. So I would recommend the supplements from Seeking Health, you know, without reservation to people because Dr. Lynch just thinks about these things. You know, he has a family and he's so hip to like, we don't want to use a soy-based phosphatidylcholine because it has more GMO Roundup. And so they're really good quality supplements. Again, I think that a lot of times people don't need supplements, but when I do recommend them, I usually recommend seeking health. So I'll give you that little plug there, Ben. I, again, yeah. we don't, people probably don't need them, but I appreciate the care and the intention that goes into your brand of supplements. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I, I you know, greatly appreciate that. And, you know, look, when you're reading the soap and scrub part in Dirty Jeans in the book, you know, the soap and scrub is, is the, you're getting to work. You know, part of being healthy is not listening to your doctor and taking what the doctor gives you, which are supplements or drugs right? Part of being healthy is actually taking action and ownership and changing things and improving things and eliminating things from your life to obtain health, right? So part of the soak and scrub, one of the, the bullet points I have in there is to stop all supplements that you can, that are not life, you know, preserving supplements that you absolutely have to have because you need to find what you can do and on your own. And you actually can do a lot without supplements, uh, by following the soak and scrub, by following the basic principles in life, by drinking filtered water, by going out and surfing like Paul does, by eating whole healthy foods, not the processed garbage with a bunch of crap in it, or actually taking supplements that actually could be making you worse and very often do because you're not using them right, or they're fully loaded with metals and mercuries and, and, and bacteria and solvents and it's a dirty industry. The supplement industry is nasty. Paul, I'll tell you, we were trying to make this gallbladder formula for about two years because we were trying to find clean enough ingredients to make the damn thing. It took us that long to find clean ingredients. And one of those things was an apple pectin powder, just simple apple pectin. We could not find a clean enough apple pectin to use in our formula. So I, I, I had to ax it. We basically sourced all over the United States and overseas to trying to find a clean apple pectin. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. Oh my Couldn't God. find it. And yeah. you know what? Because yeah. we didn't find it, someone else is using it. Someone else is using, they're using the inferior forms is what I'm saying. Right, right. So if people are taking supplements, they should be very aware of the quality of those supplements. And, and I've always appreciated this about, about your supplements. They're, they're, like I said, they're well-designed, they're intentional, and they're clean. They're, they're not going to get past... Dr. Ben Lynch's muster if they're not good. Yeah, or our QC department, which we yeah. have now. And, and uh, you know, we'll receive products that have been tested and third-party tested, and they'll, they'll land in our warehouse. We put them in quarantine, and then Amber will get to them, send them to another lab, test them again, and if it doesn't meet the quality or the, or the label spec, they're gone. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's anyway, it's, 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 it's a huge, that's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother, that's next, that's the next podcast. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the dirty yeah. supplement industry. Yeah, I yeah. love what you were saying about the gallbladder. I just want to bring that around for people because I work with so many people who have gallstones and Man. I love that you brought that up because, you know, you have, I see people all the time. You've seen people like this. People get gallstones, their gallbladder is out before they've even said, you know, cholelithiasis. And yes. it's such a disservice to people. If you have gallstones, I think that this is an, in an oversimplified world, I could say, I could go out on a limb and say, hey, you know what? This is an imbalance between your choline, your phosphatidylcholine, and your cholesterol and your gallbladder, and you're making yes. 
gallstones. So yeah. if, if you want to get rid of your gallstones or if you have gallstones, work with a functional medicine doc, look at your production of phosphatidylcholine, make sure you're getting choline-rich foods, make sure your methylation is going right, and that most likely will resolve the gallstones. Yes. And then people get cholecystitis when the gallstone ends up lodged in the head, in the, in the neck of the gallbladder, and it gets infected. But I, I think, you know, that 99% of gallbladders don't need to come out, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, and we, we, are, we are having an epidemic of gallbladder loss in this country, and people, they're whisking them out. The surgeons just love to take those gallbladders out, and never are people asking, are you getting enough phosphatidylcholine? What is your phosphatidylcholine to cholesterol ratio? Obviously, we can't sample that in the bile, but you can just give your body enough choline, and, you, and it'll work. And so, like Dr. Ben Lynch was saying, you just you have to think about where you're getting your choline from. That's the takeaway. What are the choline sources in food? From my perspective, because I'm thinking nose tail carnivore, I'm thinking liver and egg yolks. And meat is a pretty good source of choline too. But that's where you're getting your choline. And then I want people to remember, like we were talking, there is a gene called PEMT, which is involved in the formation of phosphatidylcholine. And that one can get dirty too. But again, if you're getting the right nutrients, they'll they'll be cleaner. And perhaps at this point, people's heads are spinning. And so I'll just, what I'm kind of seeing in my mind as the takeaway from all of this is that you got to work with somebody who knows the genes, who knows the methylation cycles, who's done Dr. Lynch's training, or at least understands what's going on here. But if you can create a well-constructed diet, you really shouldn't have to worry about any of this. Would you agree? I agree. And that's, that's the whole concept of dirty genes. And you know, I, I've had some, you know, of, of the docs who have studied my work read dirty genes and like, this didn't help, this didn't help me, you didn't address enough SNPs. Like, well, you, you're, you're not listening. You're not listening. And the, the, the basic statement is, live the fundamentals. Yes, you live the it. fundamentals, you're good. You're good. And you supplement at times as needed. So if you, if you get hit by, you know, a big hit of formaldehyde from, you know, working in a store all day from, you know, new clothes, you know, or new carpets, and you're working in those stores, you probably need to supplement some glutathione to save your butt. You know, if you're swimming every day in a chlorinated pool, because you're, you know, that's what you do, you're a swimmer, you probably need some additional glutathione because you're burning through it real fast. But for the most part, everyday living in, in good, clean air, and you're eating good, healthy foods, um, you know, and, and you're not completely stressed out, and you love what you're doing, you know, you supplement periodically. And, uh, you know, that's it. Um, you know, supplement is defined to is add to or enhance. That's it. That's what supplement means. And it doesn't mean you cannot add to a, a crappy diet. You know, a lot of people try to, they don't want the meds, but they don't want to change their lifestyle. So they try to supplement a crappy lifestyle with supplements and it becomes very expensive and they, they get frustrated. The supplement didn't work. Not a good um, idea. It's not going to work. It just won't. And, uh, I'm straight up with you on that. Um, so I, I love uh, you having me on here, Paul, and, and uh, I love that you're teaching people about nose and tail. And I, I want to share too that I, I recently realized uh, that the the kidney provides a lot of the DAO enzyme. Sure does. And, and it's like, well, duh, man. You you get you look at the histamine uh, DAO supplement that we we provide people, and it says it's from kidney. So you know if you're eating nose and tail and you're consuming kidney. Good on you. You know, you, you're getting DAO and you're able to process more histamine. Yeah. 
Well, I appreciate you coming on so much. I just want to like summarize for people just so that they know, because you said you live the fundamentals. Would you agree that the fundamentals are a well-constructed nutrient-rich diet, which can take many forms, doesn't have to be nose to tail carnivore, but I think that, um, uh, that that's one way to do it. And that if you're getting a really nutrient-rich diet and you're thinking, where am I getting my B vitamins? Where am I getting my cofactors? And then you're thinking about sleep and stress and you have a good community, those are your fundamentals. And exercise, getting out, going wake surfing with you, those are the fundamentals. And I love what Dr. Lynch is saying. And supplements are supplemental and you don't overuse them. You don't create, you don't, you don't add supplements to a crappy diet or a crappy lifestyle. I think that's a great point to end on. Where can people find you? Where can they find your work? I talked about Dirty Genes. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Tell people where they can find you if they're interested in more of your work. Yeah, well, I'd say I do a lot on social media. Uh, my kids make fun of my Instagram feed. They say it sucks, but hey, you know, uh, I'm not into pretty pictures. You, you get what you get. Um, it's informative, I'll tell you that. Um, so Instagram, at drbenlynch. Facebook, you find me there. Um, and then my website, drbenlynch.com. And then our, our company, uh, our supplement company and courses and pathway planners and our genetic tests are all available at seeinghealth.com. Our genetic test will be coming out uh, in the fall of, of 2019. And it's, That's an exciting thing. You've got a new genetic test coming out, right? Yeah, and it's, man, it's a lot of work, but it's, uh, it's five years of research, you know, with my research team and, and uh, you know, my desk is a mess of, of pathways and notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's literally littered with pathways it's everywhere. Um, but I'm excited because it's, it's unlike anything else. But I also want to do a shout out to uh, Marty Kindle, uh, he has an app or a website called Nutrient Optimizer. Okay. So the Nutrient Optimizer is something that's really going to be really, really useful. It's kind of like the Chronometer app too. If you want, uh-huh. if you're eating and you want to measure the nutrients in your food, Nutrient Optimizer and Chronometer would be really good things. That's awesome. So we didn't mention this, but right now I think a lot, a lot of people are probably using 23andMe. You can do 23andMe, and you can see all these SNPs. But what Dr. Lynch is developing is another type of genetic test that's probably going to be better than 23andMe or more targeted, more targeted than 23andMe. Because one of our great headaches in the last couple of years has been the fact that 23andMe has left out some of the genes that are important in methylation. So at the end of this year, hopefully I'll be able to get you back on the podcast. We can talk about it then. But what Dr. Lynch is developing is a test like 23andMe to look at single nucleotide polymorphisms, a lot of which are left out of 23andMe. Is that right? Yes. And, and actually, we, our chip is, is a lot of it's custom. So based upon our research, we found SNPs that are really, really credible. So, you know, a lot of genetic companies out there are making chips. They just they copy each other's work, right? You know, caffeine metabolizer slow or fast, or, you know, you can't adapt your sensitive to carbs. You know, it's the same stuff left and right. And I would say nobody's got what we've got because, you know, the tests don't provide it. So we've custom made our chip. And uh, it's, it's phenomenal what we've done. And the, the SNPs that we are providing you, the information we're providing you is, is actionable, okay? And it's, we tell you what the consequence is as much as we can. Sometimes we infer a consequence and we just say hypothetical. We don't really know, but we share you with this enough but stuff. But it's, it's important to find a single nucleotide polymorphism that actually has a functional change right. compared to the typical and so when you're getting genetic reports out there in the market, typically you're just getting a bunch of SNP information, but you're not getting any data of how it's functionally relevant or if it is 
functionally relevant. So it's a, it's a ton of work. It's been a, a labor of love, some frustration, to be honest, um, because we're really, really, really picky and we fight with each other uh, if a SNP should be included or what it means, um, which is great. You know, it's so at the end of, result, end of the day, you're going to get information that's going to be pretty solid and uh, actionable. I can't wait. I'm super excited about it. You know what I'll just say as we close is that it's been very clear to me in all of the learning that I've done from you, because I saw I've done your courses on Seeking Health, that all of this is a labor of love for you. And so thank you for all of your work, Ben, because there was, a, there was one of your courses on Seeking Health that I watched and you were crying in the middle of the <laughs> lecture, you yeah. know, because you were so emotionally overwhelmed talking about a case of someone you'd worked with. I think he had uh, autism spectrum and was sort of excoriating his skin. And yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can tell so clearly that this is all a labor of love for you. So we are all incredibly, uh, we are all incredibly lucky to have you, you know, as part of the community and contributing. So thanks for your time. Thanks for all of your work. And I hope people will check out your stuff if they have questions. And man, it's been good talking to you. I kind of I'm bummed I'm not in Seattle. Let's go, let's go wake surfing right now. All right, we're done. Let's go surfing. Let's Let's go. go. All right. Uh, Hopefully I'll get you to San Diego soon, my friend. Yeah. Take care, man. Thank you. Okay. There it is. I enjoyed that conversation with Ben Lynch. And I think one of the most poignant moments for me in that podcast was the fact that Ben, Dr. Ben Lynch, really really does put his heart and soul into this work. And this is a labor of love for him. I wasn't kidding when I said that I'd seen him cry during lectures because he was so overwhelmed by emotion connected with the things that he was talking about. So I love this man uh, in a brotherly kind of way. And uh, I think he's a great dude. And I really, like I said, I do think Seeking Health makes a great line of supplements. If you need them, I hope you do not eat good food. So in my opinion... The takeaway from this episode is eat nutrient-rich food, okay? You all know, if you listen to me, that I think that nutrient-rich food is no stale animal food, bioavailability, no plant toxins. That is not to say that I do not think people can be healthy or construct a nutrient-rich diet with plant foods. That is just the way that I would construct the optimal diet is without them. If you choose sweet plant foods, there are more and less nutrient-rich plant foods, and there are certainly more and less Uh, toxin-containing plant foods, so be aware of that. I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the main takeaway from what I am doing with this book I'm writing is to help people understand that animal foods are really the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet with no toxins, and that some people are probably able to tolerate plants to some degree. I'm not looking to make people's lives miserable or boring by not having any plant foods, and I think that you know, plant foods are going to trigger issues for some people because of the various things in them. So if people begin to realize that animal foods are the ideal thing, some plant foods can trigger them, that's what I'm going for because that I think would result in great health improvements for us as a human being population and maybe for our dogs and cats and parakeets too, if we feed them that way. I was kidding about the parakeets, by the way. Don't feed your parakeet meat. I don't think it's supposed to eat that. If you do, send me Uh, an email. Let me know what happens. Anyway, check out ancestralsupplements.com. SaladinoMD is the code there. Check out www.joovv.com front slash Paul. Check out my newsletter, paulsaladinomd.com front slash newsletter. I will see you guys in the future. Stay 
radical. I appreciate you all.